Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Monday, November 14th. We're about, just about a week out from, uh, I guess you would say, a historic midterm. It's been uh, an interesting interesting sort of month leading up to it, an interesting week or so since. Um, but how are, we, how are we doing this today? What are we talking about? Well, it's like our good friend, Steve Kornacki, told us when he came on last month, he said that when he talked about election day, he was really talking about election week and maybe election month. And while he was like, ah, I hope it's not a month, it, it's going to be a month. And so we're going to break down everything. We wanted to give it a little bit of space, which is why we're recording a week out to see how it how things shook out. And while there are a number of important races that are still uncalled and still up in the air. I think the picture of election day week month is, is 2022 is starting to emerge. So we, we feel like at this, at this point we have enough information. We can start to do some legitimate analysis of it, but Ricky, there's, you know, it's been a momentous couple of weeks since we've talked on this podcast. Not only have we had the election, but you got married, you went on your, your mini moon. This is, this is the first episode you're recording as a, as a married man. How's it feel? That's that's right. You know, honestly, it doesn't feel all that different. I sometimes will catch myself like, oh, I got this ring on my finger. It's it is different, but um, you know, it's uh, I think it's a it's a testament to um, just I've been been very lucky and um, yeah, and good things keep happening. So, just, so you don't you don't have any new like wisdom that you're gonna bring to to me into the podcast now that you're married. Married? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> it, it was. It was funny. Ricky and I were at a at a bar at a bar this weekend that we have frequented for a a good amount of years at this point. And he turned mm-hmm. to me at one point and said, I "Can't believe I'm here with my wife." <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. That you know, you know, there. I feel like there are just there are moments like that. It's not this pervasive feeling, but there there are just times that you just catch yourself being like, "Whoa." Things are really different. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ricky's wedding was wonderful. It was really well put together and very, very, very happy for, for him and, and his his new wife. So it's uh, many years to come, I hope. Uh, but let's enough about us, Ricky. Let's let's get into the midterm analysis here. Uh, before we do hop into that, uh, just a quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsman over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, they've been building handcraft, high-end custom tables and best in Boston since 2018. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Remember, that's Cannon with two ends. Ricky, the the night of the election, I was um I'm that sort of junkie where I'm just I'm, I'm lying, I'm just on the couch all night. It's twelve, it's one, it's two, and all of a sudden I wake up and I got I got the the morning host you know shouting at me at you know, six in the morning. Um, so, Ricky, I have a question for you. Why did the tree stop watching TV first thing? I don't know. I'm assuming it had to leave or something. 
Oh, that's a good one. Oh man, that's not that's not my punchline, but that I, that's clever of you. My <laughs> because it was sick of morning shows. <laughs> wow, dude, you're just reaching reaching to the the real depths, the dregs of this uh, this tree pun game. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah it's, you're 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 too obvious with your with yours, and I'm going <laughs> deeper. All right, all right, let's get in. Let's get into the analysis. All right, so the way we're going to do this is we're going to talk some general takeaways first, and then we're going to discuss some specific people and whether they were more winners or more losers based on the results that we've seen so far. But a general takeaway for me, Ricky, like the top headline is very good night for Democrats, very disappointing night for Republicans. So as we're recording this, The Senate, the Democrats have clinched control of the Senate. They have 50 seats with the runoff in Georgia still to come. The Republicans have 49 seats with with the Georgia runoff still looming next month in December. So that means even if Raphael Warnock loses to Herschel Walker in Georgia, the the Democrats will keep control of the Senate because um, Vice President Kamala Harris cast the deciding vote. So as it is now, so. Again, even if the Democrats lose in Georgia, they will have their Senate control will be unchanged. It looks like the Republicans are going to flip the House, but it's going to be a a tight majority. Right now, the latest things that I've seen is the Republicans have 212 seats and Democrats have 203 with a number of races still uncalled. You need 218 for a majority. So it looks like the Republicans will get there. Democrats have a very outside shot of keeping it, but it, it looks like at this point we'll have a divided Congress for for the next two years with the Democrats in control of the Senate and Republicans in control of the House. This was really in the upper echelon of great results for Democrats. It, there was a lot of talk that the Democrats might lose the Senate and might get blown out in the House. Certainly that talk existed six months ago. And while it after post Dobbs and as the economy started to come back a little bit and Congress had a very productive summer, you know, we, we started to think that when Democrats were able to staunch the bleeding a little bit, but it felt at least Ricky in, in recent weeks that three Republicans had picked up a lot more momentum and maybe we wouldn't get the red wave that we were anticipating back in June, but they were had a good shot at flipping the Senate and, looked like they were going to have a sizable majority in the House. So ultimately, my, my big takeaway is very good night for Democrats. Yeah, I I, I think that's probably a fair assessment. I, uh, I got to, so I, unlike you, I, I think since 2016, I just stopped watching election results. Um, I, I don't go to the polls now. I, I do my vote mail in and I kind of wait a week to hear. Uh, oh, you're such a modern voter, Ricky. It, well, it, it's honestly... You know, a lot of election days had caused me, well, I, you know, I thought I wouldn't have anxiety because I was trying hard, like in the moment, not to pay attention, but I still didn't, still didn't sleep very well. Um, but, you know, I got it. I got the text uh, Wednesday morning from, from our buddy Joe and he, he sent me over like the red, the red wave that wasn't like it was more of a red ripple or something more of something like that and 
And I think that that a lot of people or that that kind of the headlines were sort of screaming that I I think in some ways, if you're more of a moderate Republican or sort of more of a moderate in general, kind of more liberal on social policy, maybe more conservative on um, fiscal policy, that this is actually not the worst outcome if Republicans take the House, Democrats take the Senate. Um, You've got a lot of, um, you know, I guess what that means is basically from a legislative front, you're going to have a lot of sort of things sort of stalling in one direction or the other. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think obviously right for Democrats to celebrate, right? You've got the best results um, for the party in power of the, or, you know, party that controls the White House in the past two decades, I think since Clinton in 98, um, where in general, the conventional wisdom is, you know, if you have some issues with the economy or whatever, the party in power is going to take flack for that and they're going to get wiped out in the midterms. Um, we saw it in 2012. We've seen it uh, again, with perhaps with Trump in 2018. So now we're in a slightly different. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was clearly a weird election year. And I think my major takeaway is that social policy, when there is when there feels like a legitimate threat to existing rights, um, was a big determinant in how people voted, despite the fact that I think most of the polls would still put the economy as the number one reason that people are going to the polls for. But when they had direct choices to make, I think in, uh, well, obviously, you know, some of the ballot questions around abortion in places like Kentucky and Michigan, you sort of saw uh, those results that were perhaps a little surprising given kind of the national discussion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, there was an underestimation of how it, or, or maybe the sort of the national temperature around a lot of social policy initiatives, but then also like how much that would impact how people vote. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was something that I thought would be a factor. I definitely didn't know, didn't know that it could be this much of a factor, but I feel like it really was at the end of the day. Yeah, it was certainly one of the big factors. So just picking back up on the historical trends that you were talking about since World War II, the party that controls the White House has only gained seats in Congress in two occasions. So like the historical trend has been that the midterm elections, there's usually a backlash against the party in power. And those those two exceptions were in 98, we, like you mentioned with Clinton, who was coming off, he actually got a boost from his impeachment because people were kind of like, yeah, I don't know that that was totally right. And then 2002, where President Bush had a 70% approval rating, given his F it's within a year after 9-11. I mean, the country had really rallied around him. This election bucked all historical trends where you have, you know, as, as Kornacki said, usually you tell me where the president's approval rating is and you tell me what the state of the economy is and I will tell you like what will happen. And we have President Biden with a low 40s approval rating. There is an overwhelming dissatisfaction with the current economy. And yet, Democrats still had a really good night. And I think one of the reasons is, as you 
pointed out was abortion rights were on the ballot. And there's there's a sense in a number of states that Democrats will will I mean Democrats will protect those rights more. Um, and it's for for people that care about that, that's maybe a driving and animating factor in your voting. I think another thing was is that usually historically that the midterms are a referendum on the party in power. And if it was strictly a referendum on the party in power, it would seem like there should be a, a big Republican boost. I think Republicans kind of fumbled it a little bit and Democrats were able to take advantage of not making it a referendum, but actually making it a choice. And we'll get into this a little bit more later, but when you have a President Trump still looming, not even really in the background, but just looming over everything, and so many of his candidates are still out there repeating a lot of the same rhetoric that that he had he has done for the last six years, it became a choice between Biden, like Biden and his type of policies and Democrats and their type of policies versus, you know, Trump and Republicans. And I think that was that was, if it's not 1A with abortion, it's, it's 1B that it's out there. I heard this, this I don't know, like line going around out there that this was this election wasn't about the rejection of policies or referendum on policies. It was a rejection of referendum on crazy. And people rejected crazy. Even if, even if they didn't like the policies, even if they don't think that Biden's doing a great job and the Democrats aren't doing a great job on, on the economy, Ultimately, if you look at what the other option is, they still said, I'm going to go with, the, I might I might not like their policies, but they seem like they're the same people that are trying to govern here. Yeah, I, I think Biden had like an interesting line that he was sort of repeating um, in some of his sort of campaign rally stops for, for some of the Democrats that he was campaigning for, where he would just say like, don't judge me against the almighty, judge me against the alternative. And I it's think a good line. It's, a good yeah, line. It's, it's a good line for politics and for, for, uh, <laughs> thinking just in life in general. But, um, <laughs> I, I think that that like in, in like usually the party out of power almost doesn't have to say really what it's going to do. It just needs to focus on what the party in power is doing wrong. Exactly. And I, yeah. And I think in this case, enough people felt like they had a sense of what the party out of power was going to do. And I think, again, particularly on social policies, like I don't think there is a general sense that the Democrats have a great answer to, you know, what we're seeing with inflation and, um, and, and really like rising cost of living uh, rents and, you know, all, all of those things that kind of make it more difficult to just, to just live um, I don't think that there's a real good feeling that Democrats have that answer. Uh, but on the flip side, I don't think that anybody was like, well, if we put Republicans in, they'll solve all of those problems. And yeah, we might get some things that we don't like on the social policy side. Instead, I really didn't, I, you know, in terms of what Republicans will be able to do significantly differently to tackle some of these issues, I didn't hear much of. But what you did hear a ton of is like, well, you know, the areas that they that we know that they're going to focus on are places that we may not, you know, really want to go. And I think it was also interesting. And I don't know. I mean, we talk about sort of an inflection points a little bit, but in so many ways, 
the goings on of the last few months have made it more difficult for Republicans to pitch themselves as this, as this like re- this party of freedom that's going to get big old you know intrusive Uncle Sam off your back because in so many ways the social policies that they're pushing forward right now are actually calling for more uh, more government not less and so that is um, yeah it's a very interesting sort of dynamic that we had going into this election that like sort of the tried and true uh you know the drum beats that you can kind of count on the republicans being able to say they really weren't and so instead they had to focus on just trying to connect every candidate to joe biden and like if you hate joe biden you gotta you can't vote for so and so and i think it it just wasn't as successful as a pitch yeah i, I think that that's well said. I, if I was being cynical, Ricky, and you don't like, you know, I don't enjoy doing that. I, I do feel like there was some sense of the like existential dread of the other side winning of if, if Joe Biden and the Democrats win, you're going to have open borders and crime and this, people are going to be running around murderers in your neighborhoods and fentanyl in, in like your kids' schools and uh, you know, and you're not going to be able to afford your groceries or feed your family or, you know, like you're not going to be able to heat your house this winter. And if Republicans win, you're not going to be able to control your own bodies or or vote anymore. And there's going to be AR-15s on every corner. Right? It's, and it's like, and while like there are like maybe kernels of truth in those things, I, I hopefully I think, you know, people are like in my more optimistic side, people are voting because, they think that this candidate or this party is able to better advance like their situation, whether it's protecting their, their rights or their freedoms or their wallets, whatever. Um, But it did feel like increasingly in the last few weeks, it turned into, you know, (laughs) what's the alternative here, which is never, never necessarily great. I think despite Biden's great line. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess if there's one thing that I would like, that I that I think is is a takeaway that I have and and maybe it's not right. So I'm curious what you think. Like I think I think you did paint sort of the existential crises sort of on both sides of the aisle very well. I th- I think the problem for Republicans particularly on immigration and crime is that I still haven't heard I like I don't know what those solutions are. Like what are the policies, right? Like we've had this immigration problem for the better part of, you know, multiple decades now, right? And so the idea that, okay, Republicans are tougher on the border, like we we saw a very tough on the border sort of policy, it didn't really sort of improve the situation at the border under Trump, right? It Perhaps we had like fewer, uh, fewer immigrants coming in, but really we were just like choosing a different area to deal with the problem, whether it was like on the Mexico side of the border or on ours. Right. And then the same thing with crime. I mean, kind of the tried and true intuition of just like, we'll just increase police presence and increase spending on police and that'll fix it. I think there's kind of a broader understanding that that it's not as simple as that anymore. And we like the mass incarceration of the early two thousands didn't really address a lot of the problems that lead to crime. And of course, I think, you know, uh, Joan Binocchi really did like a good job, like explaining that that is a huge problem for voters, but I'm not necessarily sure that Republicans 
did a good, like they were able to maybe say that Democrats are not good at dealing with this problem, but I don't think they really convinced anybody in the middle that Republicans would have a handle on it in a way that, um, in, in the same way that, you know, when we talk about abortion rights, that like voters who thought that that was some, uh, something of a problem know that Democrats can do something about it and or know that Republicans can do something about it in in sort of the wrong way for them. So, like, I think it, I think in some in some ways, these existential crises, like you did have one side that you could sort of vote for and kind of count on and the other is was more ambiguous. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would say that I, I do think that both parties are struggling right now to really articulate what they are for, because I, I do think it's a lot of, well, we're not Donald Trump. We're not we're not the mega extremist Republicans. And the other side is, well, we're, we're not Joe Biden. We're not the, you know, the crazy liberal AOC Dems, you know, like uh, and but I do think it's probably worse on the Republican side, because as you and I have discussed repeatedly since trump came along like what what exactly are, are we for like we like republicans famously didn't even put out a platform in, in 2020 and mcconnell who's an excellent politician we'll talk a little bit more about shortly was like we should make this about referendum rick scott who is the is a, is a senator from florida tried to put forth this platform but the platform was like yeah we're gonna put like medicare and medicaid like on the on the table and social security is gonna be back on the, on the table and like while that might be honest, like McConnell's like, dude, we're not, that's, that's we're not winning with that platform. <laughs> like, uh, so no, I think your, your point's well taken about, and I do think there's, there's some reckoning, at least in some corners of the Republican party of though we need to get back to being a party of ideas and not just a, a cult, but all right, let's, let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about some of these individuals who, who maybe won or lost over this past week. didn't necessarily want to start with him but i also feel like there's just no escaping this donald trump ricky winner loser somewhere in between over the course of this week so all right so as we were kind of coming up with our list i definitely had him in the loser column and this is sort of what i was telling you before we started recording today that like i think the headlines were really trying to push that you know the Republican Party, you sticking with Donald Trump is a huge mistake for the Republican Party. And these are the election results that you needed to prove that. Certainly, a lot of his uh, kind of handpicked candidates did not do very well. Mehmet Oz, um, a number of secretaries of state. Um, yeah, you definitely had instances where if you picked them up in isolation, you could say, Donald Trump's grip on the party is perhaps weakening and the Republican message is more diluted with him or not, not even diluted it. Yeah. It's, it's a losing one with Donald Trump. I think, I, I think it's actually a bit more of a mixed picture. Um, certainly plenty of Republicans who either outright questioned the election or or even stuck to denying the results did win re-election you know a couple hundred in the house 
um, not a, well, you know, o- over a hundred in the house um, with with that those kinds of views, you know, prominent people like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Um, so I I think it I think it is a bit more of a mixed bag, and I think that what Donald Trump will always say is like, look, if some guy I picked lost, it's not because of me; it's because the guy's not me, and I'm the winner here. And so I don't know that this is going to be enough to get hit a, a to get him not to declare his candidacy for 2024 or B for him to really not continue to be a factor. Um, because yeah, I mean, the thing, I think the thing that's really interesting is we, we talk sort of about this like uneasy or unholy alliance between Donald Trump and evangelical Christians who are, you know, very, very vocal, um, uh, against uh, against abortion access, and I don't know that he ever really, really was gung ho about that cause. And I think a lot of things that attracted other people to him are actually outside of that. I mean, evangelical voters definitely a big part of his base, but I think in places like Pennsylvania and other places like that wasn't really you know a main component of his candidacy there. And I think some of those strains, not on the social policy side, but definitely on the, you know, anti-China and that that kind of rhetoric, I think that still plays very well in certain places. And so I don't I don't know that it was as bad of a result for him as people will make it out to be, or as people initially want it to be. That's a t- terrible. <laughs> answer no i think i i think you you took the lane that i was going to take where in the immediate aftermath of the the 24 48 hours after last tuesday this that was the rhetoric that came out with the narrative but then you look a little more deeply about who's pushing that narrative and so you see it on the msnbc's and the cnn's of like look trump is dragging you down right and i think there that's been something they've been wanting to do for for six years and then where are you seeing it? You're also seeing it on the Republican side, but where are you seeing it? You're seeing it from like the never Trumpers, the anti-Trumpers the whole time. So outgoing Maryland governor, uh, Larry Hogan got on and he said, you know, Trump said that you know, we're going to be sick of winning. We're going to win so much that we're going to be tired of it. And he's like, well, we lost in 2018. We lost in 2020. We lost 2022. I'm sick of losing like that type of rhetoric. And he, he's clearly plotting out a, a lane for his of 2024 presidential run. But as you said, like that, that's, those are the people that have always been rooting against Trump. The people that are, are the X number of the percent of the United States that are Trump supporters, whatever it is, 25, 30%, they're not going anywhere. And, you know, if, if you look at Trump on true social, like he's, he's, he's touting his record, of, which is ridiculous. Like, I think he was like 217 and nine. He was like, no, who wins like this? No one wins like this. If anybody else, if anybody else had a 217 and nine record, they people would be fawning over themselves, but it's only Trump that people hate. Uh, and, but of course, like you do point to Bulldog in New Hampshire and uh, Oz in Pennsylvania and, and Masters in Arizona. And I do think there's a, a really legitimate argument that Trump's message is no longer a winning one nationally. And that if Trump runs again, he's going to lose and Republicans are nationally are going to suffer. Is it still a winning one within a Republican primary? I, it's hard to argue that it, that it wouldn't be. 
And speaking of that, this is going to come out on Tuesday, 11-15. Trump is due to give a an announce, make an announcement at Mar-a-Lago, ostensibly, to announce the 2024 run. And so he's not going anywhere. His ideas haven't gone anywhere. And Ricky, we've seen this before. Like, how many times have we seen it, whether it was back in the 2016, like, ele- like the, that election where you had, like, the Access Hollywood tape and people started to run away from him or during his during his time, particularly, at, you know, around January 6th, people started to run away from him. And look, sooner or later, most people start crawling back. And I think Trump knows that. And even even the people that are out there right now bashing him, it's, let, let's see where they are in, in a month or in, in six months. So while it was definitely not a great night for President Trump, it was certainly not as bad as it's being portrayed in, in some places in the media. Yeah. And I mean, like even those races that you point to, uh, like, again, I I think a lot of the still the economic sort of tact of America first and stuff like that, I think in those places is still a relatively winning message. His problem on a timing standpoint is that you had, you know, a lot of these social policy things just really, really come to a head and, you know, for better or for worse freak freak people out but i don't i don't think that right across the board yeah it's exactly what you were saying they're they're voting against something and not and not for something but i don't know that really they're voting against donald trump they're voting against like like you said in the republican primaries when abortion and things like that are not even in the discussion it almost doesn't matter what you think in those primaries the trump message is still very very strong um and I think I think it's yeah I I don't think we're beyond Trump by any means. All right, since we're going kind of in in no particular order, um, I'll throw out another name, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Wow, that's deep, Ricky. So I had her on my list, but I I want to talk about her in conjunction with some other people. So. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer is was reelected as the uh, Democratic governor of Michigan. And I also want to talk about her in conjunction with three other Democratic governors that were elected. So Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, Wes Moore in Maryland, and Mara Healy in Massachusetts. So we'll talk, I'll get to Whitmer in, in a minute, but um, just historically, Wes Moore was the first black man elected as the governor of Maryland. He's only the third elected black governor ever, which I like is still stunning to me. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it's that's kind of crazy to me. And Mar Healy here in Massachusetts, we'll talk more about her later too, is the first openly lesbian uh, governor elected. So historic in both of those states. Uh, but also those those candidates, Wes Moore and Mar Healy, well, Healy in particular is not necessarily a newcomer to politics. Their stories, their brands might be people to keep an eye on. But Whitmer, and to a lesser extent Shapiro, I think are really interesting because they are they were elected in the Midwest, the Rust Belt, what normally used to be like that blue firewall, but then Trump was able to flip in 2016. And for Whitmer to win in Michigan again and really sweep, it was a it was a overwhelming Democratic victory. Like they won, Democrats won up and down the ticket. And as you pointed out, 
maybe not coincidentally, abortion was on the ballot in, in Michigan. So it's hard to tell. Is it the cause of you have, uh, is, is the abortion being on the ballot what drove so many people? Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. Or is it Whitmer and her candidacy that buoyed a lot of Democratic candidates? Hard to tell. But she's someone definitely to keep an eye on where if Biden doesn't run in 24 or maybe looking ahead to 26, where you have a governor of a Midwest state that's able to keep it blue, definitely someone people should be paying attention to. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't throw Tony Evers there, uh, my guy from Wisconsin, into into that mix. But I I think you're absolutely right. And the reason that I singled her out was because, uh, you know, in addition to her reelection, both chambers um, in the Michigan legislature flipped blue, which is a relatively historic thing in in sort of recent times. Um, obviously, the 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 old old sort of Rust Belt states were kind of regularly uh, Democratic strongholds, but um, yeah, I think I think it is it's it's interesting and and of course yeah bringing in the abortion question there there was a little bit of analysis on it and more people voted uh you know ostensibly to protect abortion rights than voted for Whitmer and so you kind of see even in in a state like Michigan uh which at least has sort of a national perception of probably being more moderate on on social issues um, really did lean heavily into this question. And it's kind of, I I think, you know, Kansas in many ways that when the abortion question came up in, I think, July or August of this year, for me, should have been more of a, a bellwether um, than it was. I think people were trying to understand if, if it's going to be, uh, if other places would follow. And I think they they really um they really have but i i think it does go to, to show that that in some ways yeah when these questions are not on the table like before dobbs when it feels like there's a supreme court protection and people are more free to vote on issues that on issues solely like the economy how 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 yeah how how will things how would things have played out differently? I think is, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a question that Republicans will be asking themselves a lot going into, going into 2024. Um, but who's next? So I just wanted to, that to wrap up, there were a couple other people on my list, but I think stand in contrast to the people that we just mentioned. And they were Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke, um, where these people were crowned, four years ago as the rising stars of the Democratic Party, where Abrams and obviously in Georgia, who was she ran for governor and had a really good run. And then um, Beto O'Rourke, who had uh, he was the in the House of Representatives that had a, a Senate run and now the governor run. And they're combined 0 and 5 in the last four years. And that's not even including Beto's uh, presidential bid. So I guess maybe like so it's, it's just it's worse than that. And it's. It, it it's interesting, you know, th- these were obviously Beto ran for president and Stacey Abrams, I think, was in legitimate consideration to be Biden's running mate as, as the vice president. And where do the people go from here is, is, is I think that's, it's going to be really interesting to watch because, again, they were painted as these rising stars, the future of the Democratic Party down south, maybe bring Demo- like Democrats, giving them a chance in states that they previously hadn't had chances in. But 
now we have this new generation. We have the Whitmers and Evers and Shapiro and Healy and more. And it's like time, you, <laughs> time moves quickly in politics sometimes. And they, who knows, they, they, they might still be future important players, democratic politics, but this might be it for them. So I just wanted to kind of briefly contrast those two people versus the other people we were just discussing. Yeah, uh, I definitely had Stacey Abrams on 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 sort of my list as potentially biggest losers. Although I think, um, or, or or just yeah, kind of the narrative that she really ran on, which was that like if in Georgia we were really able to register all the people that you know we we thought should have been able to register to vote, then my outcome in 2020 and 2018 would have been different right like that was kind of i i think a big part and i know i know you hated that she's an original original election denier (laughs) well i think she's an original sort of person saying that that elections are are rigged although Mm. i don't think (laughs) that election um the the i don't know i think in in his in history we've had this like okay if you lose an election like anything of like kind of real importance now you're branded a loser and then you kind of go away and i think in some ways that's been upended a little bit um and i'm trying to think of some prominent examples and of course nothing is nothing's coming to my to mind right now but i i do feel like that narrative of um if you lost once that that was kind of your shot and is is a is a bit over now um and so yeah i, I think i think we will see but I, in in some ways i feel like her kind of ascension to national prominence and in many ways like beto's clear like presidential ambitions i i don't think that helps in places like georgia and texas um and i think brian i think yeah i think governor kemp too not being a like a far although certainly trump sympathetic and and on the right and in that way i think that definitely helped um well i think i yeah i guess very interested to see how the herschel walker and Raphael warnock uh runoff plays out um because i think that will tell a lot about how people were sort of viewing stacy abrams in this election in contrast to some places where the choices were like a lot starker. I don't think Kemp really positioned himself as like a far right candidate. Agreed. All right. So another person I want to, let's just stick with the governor's tricky. I want to talk about Ron DeSantis. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we really could have paired him with Donald Trump in this one, right? Because the national perception all of a sudden was that Trump is what's dragging down the Republican Party. You've got a guy like Ron DeSantis who really expanded his margin over over the last gubernatorial election in Florida, right? I think he won by like 19 points this time, which is a pretty massive uh, win in what was previously considered, uh, uh, you know, the classic quintessential swing state. Um, That being said, again, I don't think that Trump is really going anywhere. And so while many people are very ready to anoint Ron DeSantis, the sort of the heir apparent of the Republican ticket in 2024, I think 
I think he's still going to have some work to do. And I think a lot of the things that he has done in the past year, although maybe they're playing well in in Florida politics, I'm not entirely sure that that everyone loves the 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 send the migrants to Martha's Vineyard stunt and um and and some of these other things that he's doing, particularly on the social policy front, right? He's like the anti-woke warrior, um, which like a lot of people really like that. Um, or a lot of Republicans really like that, but how, you know, how does that help deal with a lot of the problems that we talk about in terms of like the existential crises that a lot of people are facing that people feel that they're facing right now? I don't know. And so, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a very good day for him. Um, I think people are, are maybe a little quick to sort of say, okay, you know, 2024, for the Republican side may be done and dusted and that DeSantis is, is going to be your guy. That seems fair. And that's just the quick trigger analysis you always get after elections where people are quick to either crown or bury anybody. But we, we did a whole episode on Ron DeSantis back in May with our friend Austin Jackson, episode 54. But just like briefly for people that he's maybe just coming onto their radar for, he's a veteran. He served in the U.S. House for three terms. He's now going to be a two-term governor of, of Florida. And so he does have a really interesting resume. As you rightly noted, a 19-point victory in Florida is is a, is a statement. And while Florida is no longer the swing purple state that it had been in previous cycles, it's clearly more reliably red Republican. It's, it's, it's a very impressive showing. And while he's might be not the front runner yet, President Trump thinks he is. Have you? I don't know if you've been following, but did you see his new nickname for him? No, that's when you know he's important if he gets a name. Exactly. See exactly. Ron De Sanctimonious. <laughs> I like I'm, that. I'm that's not a, sure if it's mouthful though. That's yeah, funny. it's not quite as good as like Crooked Hillary or Sleepy Joe or Sleepy Jeb or like you know what I mean uh, Low Energy Jeb. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was Sleepy Joe and Low Energy Jeb. Um, so not maybe not one of his his better ones, but. He went on a rant, like on True Social, he went on like a 10-tweet truth rant about DeSantis the other day, about how he was a loser until Trump came in and saved him. And I was like, this tells me that he is, whether or not DeSantis is there, Trump thinks that he is. And also, you know, who also thinks that DeSantis is the guy is Rupert Murdoch, who runs Fox News and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. And they have clearly moved from Trump to DeSantis. And so while it's difficult to see if the electorate, it's, it's, it's difficult to know if the electorate has made that same sort of shift, where people are now going, like, where does the electorate get a lot of their news from? They get it from Fox News. And if, if Murdoch's going to be pushing DeSantis as the guy, DeSantis might be the guy. And so I think a, a very good night for DeSantis and he can just sit back and you know govern Florida for the next six months. There's no urgency for him to do anything. And just really, if, if Trump gets out there and he's going to get all the headlines, but a lot of negative headlines in the next six months after he ostensibly announces tomorrow that you know, DeSantis can just be like, all right, we're continuing to govern. He's got the, the both chambers in his, in the Florida uh, legislature are red. He can probably pass some more things to bolster his, resume of like, look at all of the things that I'm, all the conservative values and policies that I'm able to put into my state. That's what I could do as president. So uh, if 
if people haven't been keeping an eye on him, it's it's time to start. All right. Well, I guess the probably no no other person that that needs to get on to this list than uh than uh good old Sleepy Joe. Or our next next guy I want to put out there is uh Joe Biden. Yeah, it feels like I, just the classic Biden thing that he's what the fifth or sixth person that we're talking about here. But it's a it's a very good night for Biden. And if you're in his camp, I think he's been counted out so many times, and not only in his like life and political career, but just recently in in 2020, his elect his his candidacy was on life support, if if not barely you know breathing, barely. It was almost dead by the time he reached South Carolina. And then it was miraculously, he was able to come back. And then even six months ago, it was that, you know, that there was going to be an overwhelming rejection of Biden and his, his failed policies. And it was going to be this red wave that was going to make his last two years ungovernable. And look, he's he's retained his his Senate majority at least. And that's just, it's it's huge for him. At this point, not only is he able to going to be able to keep getting his, he's going to fill like his cabinet spots because he'll have the Senate votes. He'll be able to continue to confirm judges through the Senate. If you no, know, it's not expected that any Supreme Court justice vacancy will come up, but if it does, like he will have the votes to to get that through. And he's just not going. He's not going to have to deal with a ton of obstructionist, uh, you know potentially like impeachment stuff like in in coming out of the senate and all investigations he might have to deal with a little bit of that of the house but having the senate as a as a firewall is a huge deal for him so i think he he probably feels really validated and even if the polls are saying that he's not popular i think rightly or wrongly he can come out of this being like the people like what i'm doing yeah um i mean i don't know how i didn't think about joe biden when i was talking about you know folks whose sort of political aspirations you would have written off but of course you know he's he he should be top of mind obviously from his sort of failed presidential run in the 90s to to where he is today but even you rightly point out like what happened after you know up until south carolina during the presidential primaries um i yeah i think actually in some ways he's like the biggest winner out of all this not because this these election results were like a resounding endorsement of what he's been doing because now he'll actually i think be in more of a position than he wants to be i think with both the house and the senate he was getting a lot of pressure to pass legislation that he probably wasn't you know fully comfortable with as like a relatively modern guy he did move a lot of his positions in order to kind of capture and kind of energize a lot of that progressive uh voting block however i don't think he's ever really been this kind of a person right and so he's you know with the inflation reduction act with a couple of post-covid sort of stimuluses he's got some legislative achievements and now he can really hopefully put together sort of some teams to kind of try and enact some of these things and really see that they be successful, which I think is huge for him. And then of course, you're, I think the most important thing that you were right to mention is the being able to continue to confirm judges, um, right. Regardless of what happens between Herschel Walker and uh, Raphael Warnock, 
Democrats are with the with the deciding vote going to Kamala Harris are going to be able to continue to put judges um, up for nomination and pass them uh, really without any Republican opposition. They're not going to have a huge ton of pressure to put forth legislation that would have to be passed in both the Senate and the House because the House won't pass anything. And so now, um, yeah, I think I think in some ways this is actually going to work out um, for Biden uh, without him having to come out and, and say it like that. Yeah, and it'll certainly be interesting again this whole thing will be fascinating to see how much this influences his own decisions about whether to run again. He's been a little bit cagey about that, understandably. So he turns 80 this, this uh, weekend, which is wild. Uh, but yeah, I think he feels good. And Ricky, even if, you know, hopefully things continue to get done in terms of new legislation in the next two years, but even if the pace tails off, this past Congress was historically productive in in a lot of the the things that they did and so I, I do think there's some implementation there's been some criticism of like look you passed the infrastructure the bipartisan infrastructure bill and then you passed the inflation reduction act quote unquote and then you pass like the chips act but like we still have a lot of that money that's tied up and hasn't been distributed yet and so there needs to be like you say actual execution of that which biden will be, it'll be easier for him to do in the next couple of years because they were able to hold the Senate. So very good night for him. The last kind of, I guess I'll put all these people in a group, Ricky, and you can talk about any of them if you'd like. So I want to talk about congressional leaders. So on the Republican side, McConnell and Kevin, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy on the Democratic side, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And I guess I'll, I'll throw in Joe Manchin too. He'll, he'll, that'll be my big five of congressional leaders. Uh, obviously different takeaways for all of them but did you see any of them as a special especially like big winners or losers over the past week um yeah mansion's definitely down there campaigning for Herschel Walker <laughs> uh whether in person or through some proxies but um I would say I think Mitch McConnell to me really is coming out as as potentially the biggest loser just not I mean, I think this was a huge opportunity to basically get the Senate back, which, you know, has been his real tact for uh, exerting political influence. It's very like behind closed doors in some ways in that, like, he doesn't need the majority. He needs to be able to block judge nominations when he wants to. And then, you know, when he can push them through and, and really do a lot of I, I, I want to say damage, but really do a lot of impactful work through the courts and through some other avenues that the Senate has uh, has power. And I think really by not doing that, uh, you know, he's going to be a lot weaker of a of a voice. And I think. Yeah, I mean, I think I think when all said and done, instead of Donald Trump, a lot of the the like the flack will end up falling at his feet um, for not giving the party some real direction uh, going into these midterms. I, um, who are, who are some of the other names that you probably. Well, I'll just quickly jump in on that. I do think, I think a lot of flack is going to fall at his feet because the MAGA Republicans don't want to point the finger at Trump or at each other. And so what the easiest person to do is the establishment figure is, is McConnell who's been there forever. And everyone seems to agree that we can all dislike this guy i will say in his defense 
what he what he's what is he even talking about from us candidate quality and he's like we we don't have what what matters in in races is candidate quality and he was essentially not so subtly saying that don bolduck and mehmet oz and blake masters were not quality candidates that people were going to get out and vote for and he was right and so i I have always said this about mcconnell you can love him or more likely you hate him but he is he's an excellent politician and so yeah i feel like it's it's a loss because He's not going to be the majority leader. It's a loss because he's probably going to take a lot of the blame. You've already seen it from some corners of uh, like the, the Josh Hawley's and Ted Cruz of the world that are starting to to attack him. So that's that's difficult. Kevin McCarthy, on the other hand, also probably a loser. Uh, so he's he was in line and probably is still in line to be the Speaker of the House if Republicans take control. But he's going to face uh, some pressure from his far-right members, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, to to make some concessions if they're if he gets elected, if he's going to be elected, and he's been one of those politicians that would sell his soul to to advance his his own career, and so if he had a big majority, if he had, if the Republicans had two hundred thirty, two hundred forty seats in the House, he wouldn't have to kowtow to the, the far-right fringes of the party. But if they have two hundred nineteen seats. He's going to have to make some concessions to that wing of the party. So even if McCarthy does get to be speaker, he's probably going to be beholden to some of the more extreme elements of the Republican Party, which is not only probably disappointing for him, but it's probably not great for the House in general. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and even even as you said, like taking control of the House, although preferable to not taking control, but not having it having that massive majority regardless of sort of what they're going to have to do is is just a loss in, in it's, like, yeah it's it's just a brutal like to manage any caucus but maybe particularly this republican caucus is going to be difficult and i guess i'll just briefly with pelosi again it doesn't look like democrats are going to retain their house majority but if they do she's she's been widely expected to announce that she's going to move on and she's not going to run again but if for whatever reasons the democrats are able to maintain control with like a 218 217 type advantage she'll be back because she's the only one that could control that uh, such a slim majority yeah uh i I agree. I don't know if that where that puts her or what 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 column that puts her. I guess maybe just to round out the discussion, some major thematic sort of winners and losers. I think, um, although we did talk about like a number of pe- people who question sort of the election integrity and question the results of the election, I did want to call out the major secretary of state races in a lot of these toss-up states, Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, that really all went against um, sort of outright election deniers, um, which I think is is a pretty big victory for sort of election integrity. And I think does speak to the fact that, you know, still, whether it's a vast majority or a slim majority, still people kind of believe in the process that we have here, which I think is is hugely important, um, just for just for like the country going forward. And then the other sort of main main winner that I think we talked about a lot is that putting abortion on the ballot, um, even in states like Kentucky, um, are you're seeing that 
I mean, I, I think you're seeing sort of what people who have sort of championed abortion rights and abortion access for a long time have been saying that the majority of Americans do believe that this is not a place for government intervention. Um, that doesn't mean access to sort of limitless or sort of like un- unfettered, but there is sort of an, uh, some kind of understanding that people are um, in favor of a woman's right to choose. Um, and I think that, that that's showing, obviously I talked about Kansas a little bit earlier in the summer, but definitely all, all five states that's abortion was on the ballot, um, you know, from Montana to Michigan to Kentucky, all, and obviously, you know, Vermont and California as well, all leaned in, in the direction of either more rights or the same rights and not, not fewer. Um, and so I think Republicans are going to have to ask themselves, like, how much do we want to make this a part of the party platform in 2024? Um, as we what, what, par- what party platform are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, I, th- I think, yeah, I think just to build off that and, and wrap up here that if, you have to be cautious about this, but largely, I think if you're just care about America, demo- American democracy, like small D democracy, that this was a pretty good night, that it, it does feel like voters want to continue expanding like people's, expanding or protecting people's individual rights, their voting rights. They don't want people that are going to be maybe tearing us apart as much as they have been. And again, who knows? I mean, we can be, we, we might be back in who knows like a a month or a year talking about it seems like those elements are they're definitely not going to be purged completely it's going to take years if to do that but you know maybe maybe this is the start of that in some ways remains to be seen um and i guess maybe some honorable mention stuff i will throw out there and you know the reason i don't think democrats should be running around, you know, jumping for joy with these results. Although I guess, you know, you should give it a little get glass half full perception, but a lot of seats in California and New York flipped uh, from, from Democrat to Republican, a, another pretty, you know, it's going to be kind of small in, in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things, but um, and now I'm blanking on their names, but a, the 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 Oregon seat that flipped, um, uh, a, I think a seven-term congressman from Oregon who was like a moderate Democrat was unseated by a, a fairly progressive person in the primaries. She then lost to uh, uh, more or less a, like a, a a Trump backer in the in the general, and so I I think people definitely need to be cautious. Um, again, it, it is one of those things that's solidifying for me that in places where social policy is not on the ballot, so like places like New York and places like California, I don't think, you know, the Democratic agenda plays as well because all of a sudden, you know, those things that you may have been that you might be concerned about in some Rust Belt type areas are no longer a fear. And now now we talk strictly economy and I think, and I think right now, that's not a good place for the Democrats to be fighting. So very, um, yeah, it's important to, to think about sort of the nuances around this and and not um, try and over sort of overgeneralize what we 
what we saw um, last Tuesday. Seems to be a good lesson for any conversation about politics, but your, your point is well taken. Uh, that's all we got for the national analysis. We're going to take a, a short break, and then when we come back, we'll do a quick little wrap-up of the, the Massachusetts election results. So we didn't want to leave without at least briefly talking about what happened here in Massachusetts, given that we spent a good deal of time talking about the candidates and the ballot questions before the election. And so the big, the headline news is that this was a history making election in several ways. So as we mentioned earlier, Mara Healy is the, not only the first openly lesbian person to be elected governor in the United States, but she's the first woman to be elected governor of Massachusetts. Jane Swift served as governor to fill out a term, um, Paul Salucci's term, early in the 2000s, but um, Healy is the first woman elected. Uh, Andrea Campbell was elected as the new attorney general, taking Healy's spot, and she is the first uh, woman of color to be elected to a statewide office, which is another obviously really big deal. And just in general, that Massachusetts leadership is overwhelmingly female. <laughs> I mean, overwhelming, like exclusively. Am I right about that? Because I guess like Galvin is the secretary of state. But so uh, this is the first time the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts who was elected is Kim Driscoll. So I think, I believe it's the first time in United States history that the top two people are both women. And obviously we mentioned Campbell and um, the the auditor and the treasurer are both women as well so it's yeah it's a it's very good night for for women here in massachusetts in terms of their leadership any thoughts on the the statewide races right no i mean i think you know they played out more or less uh, yeah. as we as we expected them to but certainly right to call out the historic nature and yeah i didn't didn't quite think about the fact that it, that it is all women then you include you know mayor Wu as the mayor of boston um and yeah, Ma- Massachusetts is certainly leading the way in, in, in a number of different ways. Yeah, it, it's cool. I mean, not I don't like when people focus too much. I'm only voting on this person because of their their gender or their their race or whatever. But just to acknowledge that like these people, they don't think Mar Healy was elected because she was a woman. She wasn't elected because she was gay. She was elected because people thought she was the best candidate. She just happened to be both those things, which I like. that to me is like true. Like that's like real equality of like, she's just objectively the best candidate. We're going to vote for her. Oh, she also happens to be a woman and gay. Great. Um, but so it's like, I like, I like pointing out the historic nature of it, but I think she, to her credit and to re- like the campaign's credit, they didn't, they didn't campaign on that at all. She actually rarely mentioned those things until briefly mentioning them in her victory speech, which is totally fair. Um, but like we had said when we had our episode with Sam Gross, the the Globe reporter, and we said, these don't look competitive. Do you think they're going to be competitive? And she was like, nope. <laughs> and they they largely weren't. And, and that uh, that was the case on the congressional level as well. So um, all nine Massachusetts congressional seats remained in democratic hands as well we did spend a decent amount of time talking about the four ballot questions so again the first one was the millionaire's tax which passed 5248 the second one was the increased regulation of dental insurance passed the third one was expanding alcohol licenses amongst other things 
that failed. And then the fourth one was to keep in place a previously passed law, which allowed non-citizens to get driver's license. That passed also like 5248. So Ricky, any thoughts on those questions? Yeah, I, uh, I, I guess, I guess in, in retrospect, and obviously hindsight is always 2020, I'm not really surprised about anyone except for potentially the, the liquor license one, which I thought might have been an, an easy sort of win for Big Box Liquor, which did not, uh, did not pass. I, you know, I, I think, resoundingly in Massachusetts, the idea, you know, question four about whether people without uh, a sort of a classified immigration status should be able to get driver's licenses um, had more or less been a settled question here that that people were relatively in, in favor of, um, of that policy. The millionaire's tax, I think we talked about the fact that there's sort of like a nod that the money needs to be appropriated to uh, transportation and um, and I forget what the what the other piece is, but that that's not really a binding feature of it. Um, again, I do worry about making these kinds of policies that I think do need to be nuanced and 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 well thought out through ballot initiatives. Um, similarly, with this dental insurance thing, like I. It sounds really good. I hope it's really good. I'm definitely worried that um, it will have some unintended consequences um, for either our state or per- perhaps some some surrounding states. Um, so we will we will see. <laughs> um, I like yeah. In general, I, yeah. I, I think. God. Yeah, I just think that this is the issue with ballot questions, as we've talked about a lot, where it's hard hard enough to educate yourself on all of the candidates, let alone the intricacies of ballot questions. And so I think you have a large number, if not a majority of voters that are going in without knowing a whole lot about these questions. And so that's why I think question three, the alcohol one failed, because you and I spent a good deal of time trying to figure it out. And we were still like, I'm not totally sure, like all of all of what this is about. And so I think if you read that, then I'd just be like, no, like, I don't know change the status quo here, because I don't really know what this is talking about. But then if you look at like questions one and questions two, like the millionaire tax and the dental regulation of dental insurance, those if I'm just like kind of looking at those, if, if I just looked at the headline, yeah, like what? All right, have the the rich people pay a little bit more in taxes, and oh, those dental insurance companies they should pay more to my care. That seems super obvious to me. Obviously, if you look a little deeper, like there are collateral consequences to that that we've talked about with whether it's individuals or businesses potentially moving their tax bases elsewhere, whatever. There's there's a lot of collateral stuff to it, but I just think when you get in there, there's not a ton of people that are thinking about. What are the consequences a year, five years, 10 years from now? Let, let me just kind of vote as it is. And while you and I have talked that we generally like ballot questions because it gives more, it's like it, it increases the democratic process, it gives voters more say in like how their lives are governed, which is generally a good thing. It's tough in situations like this. It's just like, Ricky, I couldn't like I got this morning, I went down the mail and I got I got a check from the Massachusetts government giving me money back because they had taken in too much in taxes last year. 
And we just, as a state, voted to increase taxes on people. Like I, it's like that's that's baffling to me. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I, I and and I think we mentioned this when we were talking about the the particular questions. Like there are certain things that really do need to be ballot oriented questions, and I think a lot of them have to do with just kind of gauging the barometer of the the voting populace on social issues but when it comes to intricate policies like tax policy or like how do we rent how do we regulate our our dental insurance companies like that's not necessarily something that i i want to put to a vote like we elect people whose full-time jobs it is to think about these issues and understand the consequences and we have to entrust in them that they will make the right calls for us and it's scary. They're not scary, but it is. Yeah, it's just it's uh, it's difficult to know that 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 we're potentially kind of hamstringing them in terms of how they they want to think about these issues by using the ballot question. So it is. Yeah, like you said, good for participatory democracy, almost good for people in Massachusetts to give them a reason to go to the polls when they don't have really real choices on uh, on general election day. But um uh, yeah, I think it remains to be seen. And I, I will be interested, five, like you said, five, 10 years down the road, how did some of these questions really influence the shape of, of Massachusetts going forward? Yeah, last thing I'll say about these questions is that the two most controversial ones, the, the millionaire's tax and the driver's license for undocumented immigrants, like I mentioned, they passed 5248, which tells me, should tell leadership that while Massachusetts continues to lean progressive, it's not overwhelmingly so. And I think to, and to Mara Healy's credit, that's how she ran her race. She ran in like the Charlie Baker mode of just more, not as progressive as some people might like to make her out as. And this would be a good indication to her of while she might have a mandate in certain ways, I don't know that she has a huge far left progressive mandate. It's 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 in many ways like you just, you said with Biden, right? Of that, like you might be able to say, like, oh, I don't think she's going to face some pressure from true progressives here in Massachusetts to maybe put some things forth and think she could credibly argue that that's not where the electorate is. So I'll be really interested to see how she governs these next four years. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, in some ways, politics always feels like a little bit of a wait and a wait and see on the next uh, on the next thing. But um, yeah, it doesn't lend itself well to like the hot take headlines on for articles or social media or podcasts. Until then. Well, Ricky, this is uh, this is the first one we've done just you and I in a little while. So good to good to be back. And quite honestly, it's probably the longest one we've done. (laughs) Classic. I think, yeah, it's <laughs> helpful for the viewer or for the listeners too when we have guests on because we're more mindful of their time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's for a free ass that we can do it. We'll just talk forever. All right. Uh, well, it, it was a pleasure to be talking to you again. So welcome back. Indeed. Thank you, sir. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue 
Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began So morning's you away So morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands and folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American idea friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill quiet truth is better so we're online We seem to have forgotten The value sometimes being wrong So morning's you away The morning lets your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Though we didn't share Opinions we share Loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find And change the lion's head And folks are different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning bus